Thanks for joining us for another Truth Encounter as we turn in our study of Deuteronomy to chapter 21, a chapter filled with messiness and unsolved murder, a captive woman, polygamy, and a rebellious son. Maybe we can learn what God has to say about our less-than-perfect world. Here's Dave Wurtzen with our lesson titled, Willingness to Mess with the Messiness. Have you ever heard anything like this? If it's not worth doing right, it's not worth doing. I love Dave Lowry's statement I've often shared with you. If it's not worth doing poorly, it's not worth doing. And uh, some of you need to hear that, but uh, I heard a lot of, if it's not worth doing right, it's not worth doing. My mom used to just screech at the top of their lungs, these Christians are always doing things poorly. They're always painting the front side of the building where you can see it and leaving the back of the building unpainted. And she hated that. If it's not worth doing right, it's not worth doing. I can hear her now. She's probably yelling at me from heaven like that. After all those hours of training, and all I get is a silver medal. You know, a perfectionist coach would say, forget it, you only made the silver medal. Any of you kids, you know, how many of you just brought some report cards home? I think, didn't we just have report cards home? No, no. This is the way it goes in our house. Joel brings home, these aren't real grades, but Joel brings home a 98 in math, 96 in biology, 98 in social studies, and 93 in English, and Mary will say, Joel, what about this English grade here? And I'm saying, Mary, look at these grades. You know, this grade has got to come up. That's a perfectionist. You've got to watch out for those people like that. Okay? I want this grade up to be over 95. You have it in coaching. Uh, some of you have played on basketball teams. I'll never forget watching some of the girls play basketball, and they would take a shot from way out, maybe the th out beyond the three-point range, and it would just barely miss. And they would try it once in the early in the game, and man, they missed it. Their coach would yank them out. When they did that, I'd often think, of, I remember going to see Larry Bird play, and he'd be playing, and I noticed the whole first quarter, man, he'd miss the rim, he'd miss the whole backboard sometimes, but his coach never pulled him. But perfectionists can't stand to miss. And because perfectionists can't stand to miss, eventually, in life, they miss everything. What we want to talk about today is a chapter that's about messiness. The entire chapter is going to jump from one subject to the next. In fact, this chapter drives a perfectionist crazy because it jumps from one subject to the next. A lot of you are used to an introduction that captures your attention, presents the subject, and tells you exactly why you need to listen and what you're going to get out of it. And then it's three points, and then a good story, and then you're done. And perfectionists love that. Everything's tied up and all neatly packaged. One of the things that troubles me as I read the Word of God is often it's not neatly packaged like this. In fact, a lot of times it just jumps from one subject to the next and you ask yourself, what in the world is going on? Well, one of the things we need to realize is that what is going on in the Word of God is that God is revealing himself to us. God is showing us how he interacts with us, how he works with situations. And today we want to deal with several messy situations. We have an unsolved murder. We have a captive wife. We've got a polygamous household. We've got a rebellious son and an executed criminal. Now that's a mess. 
I mean, some of you are sitting there today saying, I am really frustrated. I mean, nothing seems to go right in my life. Everything seems to be a mess. I want to get across to you today. One day, you will breathe perfect air. One day, you will live in a place of perfection. One day, you are going to be with completely perfect people. But not yet. And that's what's really messing some of you up. Some of you look upon your whole relationship with God, you look upon your whole relationship with other people, and all the things need to be completely lined up. Everything needs to be put in all of its tidy boxes. Everything needs to be fair and just. Everything needs to have all the T's completely crossed perfectly, all the I's dotted, and you're going nuts because you're totally out of step with the way the world really is. What we find in the book of Deuteronomy is we have a God who's going to be the king of his people. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is the monarch of the children of Israel. And he's going to be a monarch that governs his people, governs God's people. But is he a God who will only deal with perfection? Will he only enter in and deal with his people when they do everything exactly right? Is every one of the laws that he's given us in the book of Deuteronomy the expression of his heart will, exactly the way that he wants things to be and the way they'll be in heaven? If you approach the book of Deuteronomy like that, it will drive you nuts. Because in this chapter, we have a whole bunch of things that we can say, man, God wouldn't really sanction that, or how can God put up with that? Or why didn't God do this? But what I want you to hear as we go through this chapter is I try to put it together for you and stimulate your thinking so you can begin to get to know your Heavenly Father, so that you can get to know the way the real God deals with you. In other words, there's going to be a lot of details in the chapter today that are not going to relate to you. You're not going to ever encounter some of the things that the ancient Israelite encountered. But we're going to be talking about some principles about the way the Lord worked in that ancient culture that will reveal to you his character, the way that he is. And that is going to be absolutely important for you to understand in your relationship with him. We begin with an unsolved murder. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And every mystery story begins early in the mystery with the introduction and they present a murder. And usually they show you just the feet of the person and we don't know what happened. And we don't know who done it. And that's the whole point of it. It's who did it. I know that for you English students, okay? And the whole intrigue of the plot is to figure out who is the guilty party here? Now look at how God tells the children of Israel that they need to deal in Deuteronomy 21 with an unsolved murder. Look at it, Deuteronomy 21, verse 1. If a man is found slain, lying in a field in the land, the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Notice that they always view the land as a gift from the Lord to them. And it is not known who killed him. Your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elder of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been yoked and has never worn a yoke, that has never been worked and never worn a yoke, and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is an ever-flowing stream. 
There in the valley they are to break the heifer's neck. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement, this covering. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord. And do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And the bloodshed will be covered, will be atoned for. So you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. It's a very strange custom, don't you think? I mean, you see, I told you we would be dealing with some things. I doubt very seriously that this is going to be a custom that here in Midlothian, that this week suddenly we received news that we found a body out on 67. And it's an unidentified body, and we have no idea who it is. I doubt very seriously that we're going to invite the city fathers of Midlothian and the city fathers of Mansfield and the city fathers of Cedar Hill and the city fathers of Waxahachie to measure the distance to the body. And we're going to figure out who it's closest to, and then the city that's closest is going to go through all this ceremony that I just read to you. You see, there's a lot of cultural things that are different. But I want you to stop and think about the way God is dealing with his people. The first question that I ask myself about this situation is, why doesn't God just tell them who did it? I mean, doesn't God know who did it? Yeah. Why doesn't God just reveal it from heaven and just tell the elders in the city, he done it? Stone him. Why doesn't God do that? I mean, God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. God sometimes would speak to prophets and inspire them. Why didn't he do this in the case of an unsolved murder? Because it's not usually the way the Lord does things. As we live in the messinesses of life, there's a lot of mysteries that we just can't solve. In other words, there's a lot of things that happen, and, and this is one of those messy, very difficult situations of individual has been found slain beside the road, and nobody knows who did it. And so God says, I want you to do this, and I want you to see several factors that I just read to you. First of all, I want you to see that they could call out the elders and the judges in the city. In other words, these towns in Israel were organized that had responsible heads, responsible leaders. In fact, one of the things that hits me in this paragraph that I just read to you, there is a tremendous sense of togetherness. Don't you feel that? There's a sense in which there's, there are leaders over this city and over the cities that are nearby. These are men that are viewed as being mature, wise men who are able to make decisions, able to make judgments. And in, a, and, and in one of these difficult situations in life, like a murder, there's a feeling of, in the midst of all this chaos and all the hurt and all the wonder that takes place when there's an unsolved murder, there are leaders that are really seeking to come and meet that need. They're not just doing it for money. They're not just doing it to make a buck. 
but there's a sense of community here. I also want you to see that the, that the religious leaders are involved in this. There's a sense of the Levites who are responsible to give a blessing in the name of the Lord. They are to get involved in this as well. And they go through this ceremony. The thing that struck me about this whole thing is how do we deal with unsolved murders in our town? And I have to be really honest. We've had some bodies that have ended up right out in 67. It's not just a made-up story. Because of the proximity that we are to Dallas, sometimes when there is a killing, there is a murder, they just drop the body out here. And to be really honest with you, the way that I responded is I might read it in our paper, and that's it. How about you? If it's not somebody that I know, if it's not someone that I'm related to, I really don't give it a lot of thought. I'm just being really honest with you today. It bothers me, but I go right on with my life. How about you? Isn't that true? I want you to think about the nature of that. I want you to think about what's happening in our culture. You see, the reason I respond like that is that I'm an individual, and I'm concerned about our individual needs, and if it doesn't touch me as an individual, then I don't have to be concerned about it. And what have we started to move away from? We've started to move away from a sense of community. We've started to move away from the sense that we are a group. You see, my attitude about this whole thing would be, we didn't have anything to do with it. Who knows who killed the person? It's not our town. Our town doesn't have any responsibility to it. But notice the way God in ancient Israel dealt with these situations. There was individual responsibility, but God also saw a social responsibility. And he said that the town that was closest needed to go through this whole ceremony because the community was involved. You see, there is individual responsibility, but there's also responsibility among a group. And things do start to happen. Like one of the reasons that this person is unidentified is probably because nobody knew where they were going. Maybe it's someone that just left home. Maybe it was someone that just split from their area, moved into a completely different country. Are you going to want to do that someday? Yeah, I wager you probably will. Some of you business people, some are going to say, I have had it. I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving. I want to go to a completely new place. I want to go to a place where nobody knows me and I can just be myself. It's one of the strongest drives in the American culture today. Beware. Because when you go out there and nobody knows you, and you're all by yourself. There's no community anymore. There's no togetherness anymore. And when there's no togetherness and no communion, there's danger. And if you were to lose your life, nobody might even know your name. And that's what this text is about. It's about wandering, but it's about a culture that still has a sense of communion because even in this unsolved murder, they can't just forget about it. They can't just read about it and throw it up on the table and go, well, that's it. We just go on. Nothing happened. They had to go through this whole thing. They had to get an unbroken heifer. The leader of the city had to go out, and I think that the people probably came out with them. And there's, a, there's a sense of, like, this was something that needed to be acted out for the community. And so I can see all the children, everybody going out, and they break the neck of this heifer. You as ranchers, you know, you can really envision this. You know, you've maybe done that to one of your calves that was sick or something, and you had to take care of it. So they kill this heifer. 
And this isn't a blood sacrifice. What they're doing here is they're saying this is what should be done to the person who took this innocent life. So they break the neck of the heifer. And then they make the elder of the city swear over the dead body of that animal that they don't know anything about this situation. Now, can you feel the pressure? The pressure that if you do know something, if you know some detail about what happened, it needs to come forth. So there's a sense of investigation. There's community pressure to really find out the details. And they make the leadership swear, we don't know anything about it. And then God said that as they go through this ceremony, it's done in a valley where there's a swiftly flowing stream. There's the idea of washing their hands and where the guilt can be continually washed away. There's a lot of art in this text, a lot of God's visual presentation to us. In fact, even as I read it, when I think of washing the hands in guilt, what do you think of? Right away, all of you think of Pilate. Well, this is one of those early times And we've often talked to you about the fact that when we're guilty and we want to remove guilt, you want to wash yourself. For example, if someone gets involved in sin, one of the things they'll do, they'll probably start increasing their showers or increasing their baths, trying to wash themselves clean. Well, in this text, God used that idea of physical washing to be a symbol that they were cleansed from the guilt of this murder. I want you to really see that God had a culture where there was community, where you couldn't just leave a body out there and nobody did anything about it. It had to be looked into, it had to be carefully investigated, and there was a sense of that the person, even an unnamed person, that people didn't know, they didn't know who did it, even that individual could not be taken lightly. And this whole ceremony had to be carefully followed because human life was that valuable. I want us to pray as a group of believers, we need to recapture that sense of community. I want to really warn you, there are tremendous forces that are pushing you towards individualism, towards just being with yourself. In fact, you're going to sit in a chair You're going to put all the sensors on you, look at wraparound screens, and you're going to be able to drive race cars, you're going to be able to fly airplanes, you're going to be able to have the most scintillating experiences, you'll be able to travel, and you will never leave your chair. And you will be all by yourself. And some of you have already started doing it. And as you get older, you do it more. What is your schedule like this week? Do you go to work and hardly touch base with anybody? When you come home, do you eat their supper? What's your conversation like around that supper table? And then do you flip on the electrodes? Do you flip on the TV and just sit? You know what you're doing? You're having relationships. You're having communion with electronic images. It's a very powerful force. Americans are drawing into themselves. We're doing it as a church family. And I want you to realize how devastating and how, how serious that will be to your life. Don't allow it to happen. You've got to develop community. You have to develop a, a group of connectedness. And that's what this text is showing. This city was together. 
As, as a group of believers, we need to be involved in our city. We need to encourage those in our group rather than criticize them, rather than judge them, those that are serving on the city council, for example, those that run for school board, those that serve in the school board. It's hard to be out there trying to develop a sense of community. People don't care. Good people will say, I'm not going to run. Why should I run? It's just a big hassle anyway. It's really easy to sit on the sidelines and criticize. That starts to destroy any sense of town any sense of city, any sense of being together. The Lord has called us to be out there, to be good citizens, to ultimately be all infiltrated with our culture so that we can bring the light of the gospel. It's people that are really shouldering the yoke, that are part of the community, part of the city, that have the opportunity, they have the platform to be able to reach out to others. That's what this text is about. Those are the abiding principles. If you're in the legal profession, if you're, if you're in justice, if you're a judge, if you're involved in those areas, it means like, I know, I know that most of it's done just for money. I know that there's all kinds of games that are played. I know that most people just live materially. But as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we need to dare to be different. Dare to care. Dare to really be concerned about the individual. Dare to really investigate carefully, even when nobody else cares. That's what being a believer in the marketplace of the law and justice and community is all about. All of us as individuals, as we're watching the news, one of the simple things we can do when we see the news, rather than just stealing ourselves and saying, I don't care, it hurts too badly, we can become people of prayer. When we hear about problems, we can say, Lord, I do care. I pray for those families. And sometimes there is connectedness. And, and a lot of you have gotten involved in all kinds of different situations. That community, that sense of caring, that sense of involvement, that sense of having leaders who really are leaders, is all part of what the abiding value of this text is. That's problem number one, an unsolved murder. Let's deal with problem number two, a captive wife. It says in verse 10, When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives. Bad news situation. They've gone to war. And this is one of the cities far away. Not one of the cities in Canaan, but one of the cities far away that we learned in the last chapter. It says, When you do that, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. Those are all signs in the ancient world of breaking from one lifestyle and moving to a new lifestyle. It's all, those are all the trimming of the hair and the trimming of the nails and all that. The changing of clothes was like moving to another culture. On the masculine side, you can have an example of that. When Joseph was taken out of prison, he shaved, they changed his prison garments, and then they got him ready to appear before Pharaoh. That would be an example. He needed to be prepared to move into another culture. That's the idea of that verse. She needs to put aside the clothes she was wearing when captive. And after she had lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. Notice that there can be no force. I want you to realize, ladies, that these commands were given in a culture that would often treat women just like they were cattle where women were abused in that way, they were treated like property. 
and God is entering into a situation, especially a captive woman. A lot of soldiers, like a Roman soldier, for example, years later, but I can use it for illustration, if a Roman soldier conquered a city, they just grab a woman they wanted, have relationships with her, and just trash her on the street. It still goes on today in war. Now, God is entering into that messiness. That's what this text is about. God enters into the messiness of war, and you notice what he does with his own children of Israel? He says, you can't do that. You can't just rape a woman as a soldier. You can't just, because you have the power over her, you can't just rip her out of her family because she's beautiful, do whatever you want with her. No. God makes his Israelites go through a very careful ritual. They need to respect her. They need to give her a full month, which was the mourning time for a very honored person. They need to give her time to mourn the loss of her family and mourn the change in her situation. And only then could she be brought in. I want you also to see that she is brought into the covenant people of God. She is not treated as a foreigner. She becomes the wife of an Israelite under this old covenant, and she has all the rights of a wife. Dave will be going on from this point next time and speaking about the rights that God assured the captive woman within his covenant people. I couldn't help but think, as Dave was closing today, of the messy situations some of you might find yourself in. Some of you have had a marriage partner die, and you are wondering if there are any God-blessed happy times in the future. You mourn the destruction of your old way of life, just as this captive girl mourned the loss of her family and people. But the text points forward to a future, and it's not a future divorced from the love and grace of God. As we discuss how God worked in his Old Testament community to bring hope into the messy situations they faced, I pray you too will sense his work in your life.